and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Daniel Gross is one of the most interesting members of the startup community today. He's the youngest YC founder in history and sold a company to Apple at 23, where he ultimately rose to lead Apple's efforts in machine learning. After his time at Apple, Daniel joined YC as a partner in 2017 and ultimately moved on to found Pioneer. Pioneer is a fully remote accelerator dedicated to funding projects and startups built by the ambitious outsiders of the world. Daniel founded Pioneer to provide some of the non-intuitive benefits of Silicon Valley to many more people. Pioneer provides capital to jumpstart ideas, but most importantly, Pioneer broadens people's horizons on how they view themselves. We spent this conversation talking about a number of topics, how the world will bounce back from COVID, the philosophical underpinnings of Pioneer, the nature of games, and why an organization like Pioneer is so valuable to flattening the innovation curve. Daniel, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Yeah, Daniel, excited to have you on the show today. You know, dive pretty deeply into Pioneer, you know, the paradigm shift you're executing against, and really how the world and startups move forward, you know, through and post-COVID-19. We're in an interesting time uh, to be having this conversation today. You know, but before we jump into those topics, tell us a little bit more about your background and the journey to founding Pioneer. Sure thing, yeah. Um, so I'm originally from a small country called Israel, um, born and raised there, came out to Silicon Valley um, really on a, on a total win um, when I was 18 years old. And I started a search engine uh, that uh, raised a bunch of money from raised a Series A and a Series B from Sequoia Capital, a bunch of others. And uh, we got acquired by Apple in 2013. Our product turned into Spotlight Search, if you've ever used that. Um, so that was kind of the idea of the company that then got productized into the iPhone and iPads and Macs that we all um, hopefully use and enjoy. Uh, and, um, you know, I found myself uh, at the um, at the ripe old age, I guess at the time, it's maybe 22, 23, um, uh, running a large fraction of search and machine learning for what at the time was the world's largest company. And, uh, y- you know, what started to develop in me is a little bit of an imposter syndrome, um, you know, having... Uh, not really been the you know most popular kid in high school and um, mostly being kind of a, a, a nerd that liked to stay at home and write code. Um, I never really expected myself to have sold a company, um, to, be, to be running such large divisions at a company. And you know, along the way, I, I started investing in um, startups and, and I kind of started watched them grow uh, as well. You know, companies like you know, Uber and Coinbase and Instacart and um, uh, and, and, and it kind of struck me uh, that, you know, for, for every one kind of great founder, um, there's probably 10,000 more that, that aren't activated, so to speak, um, that, uh, you know, peop- that there are people like me, uh, like I was, um, who could stand to be much more successful than I was, uh, you know, that are in the kind of Israels of the world, different pockets um, uh, of very disconnected parts of the universe that if they were just nudged a little bit, like I was, if they just got a little bit of investment, um, could be transformed, could be turned into, um, founders one day. And that's the kind of idea behind pioneer. Uh, and, and, um, that's kind of what we try to do. Pioneer is a fully remote online accelerator. Uh, you can, uh, join it really regardless of where you're from. You can get started regardless of where you're from. Um, doesn't cost you uh, that much uh, if you win it and you get kind of all the benefits uh, of, of, um, 
of a real startup accelerator. And our goal is really not to be an accelerator, it's more of to almost be a startup generator. We try to get people that are a little bit early, um, you know, we kind of think of pioneers of YC before YC. In fact, many of our best pioneers graduate to YC. Uh, and uh, what we're really trying to do is trying to get people that are at the stage where they might be working on a project, less so a company, and they're trying to figure out if that thing is good or not. Um, they're trying to figure out if, if it's worth taking that thing a little bit more seriously. And Pioneer uh, it kind of built as almost an online game in, in, in the sense where you kind of join at a fairly uh, early level. And if you, if you gather enough points with the project you're working on, we can talk about the dynamics of how it works internally, um, you kind of get a sense of a validation that what you're working on is quite good. Um, and so that's really what it's, what it's built to be is kind of part um, early stage uh, kind of pre-seed startup uh, accelerator, maybe generator, and part kind of a motivational and validation tool um, for, you know, the thousands, maybe millions of, um, uh, of you know, technical uh, project builders around the world that, that, you know, have something they work on, uh, you know, on the weekend or something they think about in the shower and helps them turn that into a company. Um, once you kind of go through the, the whole experience on Pioneer, if you uh, win our uh, kind of online game, um, that, that, that I can describe more in, in a bit more detail, uh, you end up getting um, kind of many of the benefits of, uh, of a startup accelerator. And so, uh, you know, to, to some extent you get funding, um, you get, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in credit so that you can go out and build your machine, but more importantly, you're, you're a great company, but more importantly, um, you get access to a community. Uh, uh, other pioneers, uh, you know, that are kind of your, your equivalent of Stanford or Harvard, uh, help you punch above your weight. You know, these are a collection of people, outsiders really, um, that have all built uh, or are building kind of interesting things on the fringe that are all working on small projects that might get big. And you get access to mentorship. Um, we put you through kind of a month-long program uh, where, where you get a chance to do office hours um, and get a chance to interact with a lot of our experts. Uh, and um, it kind of all culminates in this thing called the Pioneer Livestream, our, our kind of equivalent of a demo day, where um, you present your product to a bunch of investors, uh, uh, of course, all through the internet. Um, and we stream it kind of live, you know, be it on uh, uh, Twitch or uh, Twitter or, or, uh, or YouTube. Uh, and, and so it's kind of a neatly packaged way uh, to, to, to kind of dip your toes in, in, in the waters of capitalism, so, so to speak, and to figure out if what you're doing kind of deserves a little bit more focus. Talk a little bit more about, you know, Daniel, you were mentioning kind of um, multiple times, you know, throughout, throughout that piece around, um, you know, the importance of kind of mentorship, right, as, as obviously a direct function of Pioneer. But it, I think there's this fundamental underlying premise that you're talking about. And if you talk, you've talked about this before, right, the importance of, you know, when you look at a lot of successful people, there's kind of this Venn diagram overlap, right? Luck, happenstance, capability you know, mentorship, et cetera, but there's a component of belief, right? And you, you've talked about the value of that, you know, in your own journey. And I think it's, it's fundamental and instrumental to this idea of being able to have, you know, Pioneer be successful, right? And, and scale, um, you know, to that many more creators, you know, contributors, et cetera, in the world. Talk a little bit more, you know, about that idea, because I think it's one of the underrated, you know, and often glossed over, you know, parts of, you know, what makes the value work, but, you know, what, what makes kind of successful companies, et cetera, you know, operate and work as well. Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, a lot of people wonder, um, why aren't there more startups? You know, at the end of the day, it's pretty interesting that our economy is tech. The tech economy is basically, I don't know, six large giant companies. 
and uh, and that's kind of it. And you know, why why isn't there more of a fractal archipelago of kind of interesting online businesses? What's the what's the constraining um, uh, kind of resource there? Is it capital? Is it ideas? I kind of happen to think it's um, it it's and this is going to sound weird, uh, but I very much believe it's true. It's uh, kind of this an element of self belief. Um, because the, the, the online, the, the kind of natural marketing engine of the world has distorted um, the reality. And it's convinced us that startups are these giant uh, or successful companies are these insurmountable things that, uh, you know, not mere mortals can achieve. You know, you look at SpaceX, you look at Facebook and you look at Amazon and, and it doesn't seem like something you can start and do. But of course, you forget that everything big starts really small. And you can go look at the old landing pages of these websites and realize um, you know, they, they were kind of silly in their early days. I mean, Google was a university project called Backrub. Um, you know, Amazon's really own, only intentions was to sell books um, to a bunch of states locally uh, around the U.S. on this, you know, weird fangled, uh, you know, kind of new frontier thing called the Internet. You know, that the modern day equivalent of that would be someone selling um, collectibles on Ethereum. That uh, You know, that's kind of the environment was then. So, so everyone kind of forgets that everything big starts small. Um, and there's a lot of people, I think that, uh, well, there's a lot of companies, I should say, that are never created that are, you know, half-formed GitHub repos. Person does a bunch of commits, works on something, and then reaches, you know, at some point, um, a moment in the 80-20 curve where they're convinced, um, you know, they're, 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 the, the difficulty is such that they're not convinced they can push through and they're not even sure why it's worth it, and then they move on. Um, and uh, that, that's, I think, something that's um, probably the main thing um, that's kind of removing a lot of startups from the world. And, and Pioneer is built as, as a tool to really, I mean, it sounds almost silly to think that this is issue, the issue, but I think it is, to, 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 to kind of um, productionize what it's like to tell, you know, 10,000, 100,000 people, you should take whatever you're doing a little bit more seriously. Uh, and you should, to your point, believe in what you're doing a little bit more. Um, and I think if you did that, you, you, you would actually catalyze a lot more creation in the world. Um, I think, I mean, we can kind of think of the world, all jobs in the world being split into two buckets. One are kind of clear jobs where the next step is, is very clear, very achievable, um, very knowable. It's a tree. These are jobs like, you know, working in Starbucks, working in a large company, working in the military. Um, that system kind of works. It's like a video game, and the next step is very clear. But then there are opaque jobs. Um, the opaque jobs are the jobs of, you know, a lone investor or a founder, so to speak. The next step is not always clear. Um, and so the, the kind of motivational fuel of why you would even continue working on that thing is very unknown. Um, and it comes in fits and starts. Uh, and, uh, and so I think in opaque jobs, uh, it is actually quite important um, to come up with a way to kind of consistently give people the dopamine and the motivation to continue. Um, because what kills a lot of them is, again, like a bad video game, just it gets too hard at an uncertain moment and, or, or, or too easy at an uncertain moment, you kind of give up. Uh, and um, that's really kind of what we're trying to do with software. Um, uh, and, and I think, you know, we can see various examples of this in, around the world working organically, you know, People get such a dopamine thrill if they tweet something out and someone, you know, they admire likes it. Uh, or, you know, it's, it's that moment when, when uh, you, you, you raise a half-formed idea to a friend and they say, yeah, that's really good. 
And you kind of think to yourself in that moment, oh, I didn't even think that was such a good idea. But maybe if you think it is, it probably is. Um, and we're really trying to kind of operationalize that in software to give people um, that little bit of nudge and encouragement to, to, to take whatever they're doing a little bit more seriously. So let's go into that operational piece, you know, in a little bit more detail, right? Because again, you were, you were alluding to it, but it's interesting when you kind of, when you diagram it out and the way you've structured Pioneer, right? In many ways, it overlaps, you know, with the mechanics of a video game, right? As you were just alluding to, there's elements of community, you know, wisdom of crowds, competition, you know, et cetera. And, and of course, you know, that was an intentional decision, right? So talk a little bit more about that and, and talk a little bit more about kind of the commonalities or, you know, the elements of, you know, a video game, right? Or, or the elements rather of a game and why you think that, you know, applies to kind of a life journey or a career journey. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, so maybe a useful moment to, to try to kind of visualize some people how Pioneer works on the inside. It's a website and when you go to it, um, you're, you're kind of greeted with um, uh, what is kind of a role-playing game for your project? And the way you're going to get more points in this game, the quests that you're going to go on um, are going to be all correlated to, for the most part, correlated to making progress on whatever your project is. Uh, and so, you know, that could be anything from getting more revenue, talking to more users, whatever the kind of metric you're chasing, the more progress you make, the more points you make. Now, we don't have or I think need like a, you know, like a mini-map to walk through and avatars or whatever. Um, but, but really, when we say games and gamification, what we're talking about is just this concept of a, of a leaderboard, um, of a system that kind of tells you where you rank um, and lets you compete against yourself and against others. You know, we've seen this effect work really well. Um, well, obviously, since the dawn of time and sales teams, but, you know, you can kind of think of it as Peloton, really, for startups. And, and you know, some people are motivated by competition against others. I think uh, many people are motivated by just improving themselves. Everyone's excited about that idea. And so this gives you, this kind of puts a number on it and gives you an acute sense of, um, of improvement. Um, and I think, you know, we would all do well to be students of games. Um, there's something really interesting about them as a product and as a market. It, it is a thing created where um, the whole purpose of it is to keep you engaged and keep you in flow. So like the purpose of a the purpose of an email client is to send email. The purpose of WhatsApp is to send messages. The purpose of a game is to keep you engaged. And as a result, they've developed all sorts of mechanics to, well, to be really engaging, right? Um, like a really good game is a really good story. Um, uh, and so, um, I, you know, what I think would be really interesting is to try to take those elements of gamification and try to kind of breed them into different forms of productivity. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, no, nobody's really done this well, but I think it'd be really interesting to make an email client that was aggressively gamified, that kind of made the aspect of doing email a little bit more fun. Um, I think you can do the same kind of with any product. Uh, and Pioneer tries to do that, I think, with the ultimate product, that, that, um, which is the one of, of kind of creation. Um, so that's kind of our strategy there. And, and so far, it seems to be working. So you, you go through this process on Pioneer, and within two weeks, we'll tell you if... Um, uh, if you're a finalist or, or, or indeed a winner, uh, in which case you're kind of welcome to join them, the other cohorts of pioneers. But even if not, you know, we get dozens of emails um, a week from, from people thanking us for creating um, the tournament. The tournament itself may be the, the most powerful thing we've done um, because it is an extremely scalable tool uh, that gets people held accountable, that gets people to punch above their weight, that gets people motivated a little bit um, to, to, again, to 
to go the extra mile, um, to, you know, to take that thing they've been working on on the weekend and, I mean, try to see if it should be a real company. Talk, talk about it's it's interesting because when you when you kind of think of the different mechanics of the game, right? There's there's multiple different facets of it, and one of, one of the things that I found you know really interesting is kind of this crowdsourcing element, right? And I think we're you know especially in the situation that we're in right now in the world itself, and we'll, we'll dive a bunch you know deeper into this also. But I think there is this element of you know we're seeing kind of the benefits of the crowd, right, and benefits and benefits of you know de- uh, democratization of access. I'm curious in, in the pioneer application itself and, you know, potentially the, the thought process has evolved over a period of time, but, you know, in which kinds of situations have you found that, you know, the crowdsourcing piece or mechanic, you know, really works well? Um, and where are there, you know, kind of opportunities or so where you've had to potentially augment the process because you found it hasn't worked as well? Yeah, I mean, crowdsourcing, um, so we should, we should flag that, one of the dominant things to drive your score in the sorting on the Pioneer leaderboard um, are uh, the kind of the votes of other people playing the tournament. You know, they're, they're asked to kind of rank which progress update they think is more interesting uh, or, or um, more notable. And that creates an element of, you know, filtering and crowdsourcing. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the wonderful news about that is that broadly it works. Um, uh, you know, we are able uh, to kind of sift through and, and the top of the leaderboard is, um, you know, uh, making more progress in the bottom of the leaderboard. Um, there are elements of it, uh, you know, that it just just like um, kind of, um, how would you say, uh, any, any online system, you do need some moderation. Um, uh, I think the crowd directionally gets you there and then you need moderation to maybe go the, the last mile, so to speak. Uh, and so we do have a bunch of folks, myself included, kind of review the the um, pioneers at the top of the leaderboard, um, you know, and, 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 you know, I think for the most part, we're looking to figure out things that seem underrated even by the crowd that might be great. Uh, you know, there are plenty of examples of um, great creators, uh, founders around the world, uh, scientists, engineers, uh, who aren't so eloquent. You know, you can kind of think of Einstein shuffling his feet, or even to this very day, Elon Musk, I wouldn't say is the best orator, certainly not a Churchill. Uh, and so you kind of see that on the leaderboard occasionally, um, you know, people working on things quietly, uh, making uh, actually a prolific amount of progress, but not really great at detailing it. Um, you can also see on the other side, uh, a lot of showmanship, um, people chasing sort of vanity, um, not actual progress. And in some situations, they, they get their goal. They fool the crowd. You see this on social networks all the time, you know, that popular post that's actually fake news. Uh, and so we kind of think a mixture of both really gets you there because it allows you to both promote um, the kind of quiet, um, uh, underrated people of the world and, of course, demote um, those that are, uh, well, you know, uh, promotional masters. Um, now, ironically, the best founder has the ability to toggle these things on and off when you're selling candidates or closing deals. If you're working in enterprise, it's quite helpful to be able to properly present what you're doing, uh, you know, in an exciting light. Um, but, um, you know, these aren't innate skills. These are ones that you acquire. And so, you know, we don't believe that our pioneers need to have them, you know, at the embryonic level, we're working with folks. It's certainly something you can grow with later on. The unique thing about Pioneer also, you know, when, when I look at it is, you know, unlike many traditional games in the world, it's not, it's not a zero sum game, right? So there's, there's nuances kind of we're talking through in terms of, you know, um, 
how do you leverage the best, you know, of, of crowdsource, right? How do you leverage the best of specialization, et cetera? I think one of the interesting mechanics, though, at, a, at an overarching level is Pioneer is really not a zero-sum game, right? If I think of traditional games in the world, like sports, you know, you win or lose. In, in venture, you win or lose, right? You're either in the deal or you're not. There's nothing really in the, in the middle, right? But that's not the case with Pioneer. So talk a little bit more about how you think about kind of that idea of a zero-sum game versus non-a zero-sum game and what the hypothesis is in terms of, you know, how that attributes, you know, to overall value creation. Well, it's interesting. I think when when people often get started in the world and they're starting to work on their company and their project, uh, you know, I think, I mean, I found, I should speak for myself, when I was young, you have, the, you have a tendency to get a fix that everything is a zero-sum game and there isn't enough food and for me to win, um, you know, at the cost of others, well, so be it, um, such is life. Um, and I, I find the people that really endure throughout life and when, you know, kind of multiple times are ones that have an incredibly long-term view that treat things much more as an infinite, not finite game. And, uh, you know, a, a good metaphor here that I like to think about is running this competition. You know, if I run a marathon faster than you, I didn't cost you anything. There's infinite running around the world. There are infinite number of roads and trails. And, and so it's not this game where if I win, you lose. And yet, it, you know, it's, it's thrilling and it's motivating to kind of compete and play against each other, so to speak. And I think a true, you know, as, as, as at least as I have aged, and I think um, this happens to many, you kind of realize that that is the real game you're playing. And, you know, for example, you know, if you, uh, I've had many situations throughout my career where, um, you know, I've say lost a candidate to another company, but then, you know, later on in life, they've, they've come back or someone else from that company has joined. And so, you know, I think I think realizing that a particular battle you're fighting, although it may be extremely important and, and you kind of may want to win it, um, you don't want to be kind of bad, uh, you know, a bad actor in the world or one that's um, one that doesn't get invited to, to kind of more games. That, that, that is, I think, the ultimate goal um, to be a person that other people want to collaborate with. You know, unless you're Jeff Dean and you're truly able to summon um you know, the AGI from your computer, other humans are going to be the most important thing you interact with. Uh, and so I think, you know, being, uh, uh, being able and, and in fact, being someone that other people are excited to work with, I think is very important. Why do you think that's not, Daniel, why do you think that's not intuitive, right? So I, I think, and there's, I think there's a couple elements to that. So one is, you know, obviously the amount of, you know, even if we focus in kind of on Silicon Valley, right, the amount of you know, bad actorship, et cetera, that, that goes on and, and not from any, you know, from any purpose of, you know, legality, et cetera, but I mean, from a reputational basis, from an interaction basis. I think there's another layer also, um, you know, there was a really good article about this a couple of years ago, um, you know, when Benchmark and Uber were going through, you know, their lawsuit, which was, you know, on one hand, right, it certainly had an effect on Benchmark's reputation as being founder friendly. On the other hand, the game had changed. Right. The generational returns, you know, from that one company were so great, you know, that the kind of uh, the, the motto of being founder friendly or playing this repeat or infinite game, the rules of the game had suddenly changed. So why do you, why do you think it's not as intuitive kind of on, on a more micro level, but at a macro level, you know, how, how do you think about that kind of infinite game? Are there pressure tests to that infinite game or you truly believe that that's the you know, that's the goal as you were just laying out? I mean, I think the pressure, there's a survivorship bias here where when you look at the people that have really succeeded over time, 
I think one of two things happened. Either they get tremendously lucky and they just strike gold and then, you know, nothing really else matters. Um, uh, and so sometimes you see this with folks that just get product market fit the fifth day of running their company and then nothing else matters. Um, but then, you know, for the most part, the other people, the people who, when you run the Monte Carlo simulation of life, survive multiple times, I think are the ones that continually get invited to the party that are truly infinite gamers. Um, and so, uh, you, you know, the pressure tester for that is, is I think, survival in society. Uh, and I think you find when you meet a lot of people at the very top that there's something very compelling about them, um, that you, you feel like there's, a, there's an element of, um, of plenty, uh, you know, and, and so you, you feel like you want to collaborate with them because you feel like it won't cost you anything. Um, now, I think the interesting question is how, how do you inculcate that earlier in people? And I don't really know the answer to that. Um, uh, but, um, but, but I think if one is kind of self-reflective enough and, you know, I, I think, I think kind of most founders are after every interaction, you're kind of wondering how could I have done better? Um, I think you, you slowly teach that to yourself. Um, it's certainly something I've, I've taught myself over the years. I'm curious if you think, and I've kind of thought about this and, you know, talked with a number of colleagues about this is that, you know, through this environment we're going through right now with the coronavirus, it's a unique moment in time, right? In every sense of the word. Um, and I'm curious as to whether, you know, some of those kind of mentalities or, or some of those opportunities for inculcation occur. Uh, because in many senses right now, you know, we, we do as a, as a society find ourselves in more of an us against them mentality where, you know, more, you know, probably more, more so than ever before in history, you know, the side on the us is, is significantly more than the them, right? And I, I do think that has an effect on core human psychology. I mean, even in the most micro kind of playful sense, you know, in my family, we've been playing a number of board games during this lockdown and, you know, our attitudes and demeanor, et cetera, completely change, you know, when we're playing against a common goal, you know, versus each other. So I'm, I'm curious if, you know, and it'll, you know, it'll take a while to tell and we'll do, we'll have to do longitudinal studies on it. Um, but I'm curious if this type of environment, you know, uh, enables, you know, more inculcation um, than, than not. I mean, you know, on the, on the one hand, you know, maybe there's constrained resources and supply chains. And so you can envision people kind of turning and nations turning within. On the other hand, never before has the, um, has mankind ever been united against a single foe or enemy, literally. I mean, especially if you consider it um, at the speed at which, you know, we've all kind of commonly rallied uh, and in many ways broken intellectual borders. I mean, researchers from China openly sharing, uh, you know, information with American researchers, um, companies sending each other, countries sending each other ventilators. Actually, I think this has been a great moment of global unity. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously a, a, a terrible way to get there. But I do think that's a, a huge silver lining is there's something very human about this moment that it's, it's really us against nature it's us against this invading alien species uh that you know ironically is about 40 kilobytes in size and has ground the world to uh complete halt um but uh i think i think many of us are kind of uniting to to fight against it um so yeah, I, I find it quite striking and um promising actually it really goes to show you how elastic the human condition is um you know, Apple and Google, bitter enemies, thermonuclear war, I believe was the quote Steve Jobs applied um, to, to thinking of Google back when, he, you know, he believed they stole the iPhone plans for Android. And yet they announced three days ago that they're going to be working together on contact tracing uh, in order to, you know, help suppress the effects of COVID. So um, 
actually think this is a great moment of, of kind of unifying strength for the world. And, um, you know, I, I hope that kind of remains even after the, the pandemic is uh, shown at its worst. No, I, I completely agree. I, I think the environment's actually given the world a very visible sense of, you know, what can be accomplished with singular focus, you know, and, and resource um, contribution at scale. I think it's also unearthed, you know, kind of interesting conversations and topics around, you know, the challenges of competition, cooperation, coordination, incentives, kind of all at once. How is how has this situation pushed your thinking, you know, just on the nature of of impact at scale? Right at Pioneer, obviously, you're building for, uh, you know, create enabling, you know, additional creators at scale. Right. So how how has this pushed your thinking on that on that topic? You know, it's funny. One thing, you know, we started Pioneer and one, one mistake I certainly made um, was I started thinking of success for us kind of along the lines of Instagram metrics or numbers. So we wanted to be at, you know, a billion users at some point. But then you realize at the end of the day that that's not really what we're shooting for. And um, we're in a different game where we care about quality much more than quantity. We funded um, 130 Pioneers to date, a bit, a bit under a year and a half. So that's like you know, 20 to 50 X more than a traditional venture capital firm will do in its, you know, initial year. Um, and, and, and we're very happy with that, but we're also very, uh, uh, how would you say, um, we're, you know, we don't feel pressure, um, to double or triple that we'd be happy funding the same number of pioneers over the, over this year, um, uh, this coming year if kind of quality goes up 10 X. Uh, and so for us, you know, it's not about getting a billion users. It's about getting, kind of funny to think about the total addressable market for us, you know, I think there are millions probably that we can achieve over our lifetime of potential founders we can reach and touch. But, um, but, but for us, it's, 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 you know, there's not 7 billion. So we really want to make sure we're getting, you know, and we're creating, um, you know, a very large amount of market cap, uh, people that start companies that, you know, that uh, become incredibly useful um, to, to billions of people, but we are ourselves, um, although we are incredibly scaled up for our market, we are incredibly unscaled if you compare us to, uh, you know, to um, your standard consumer product. What's the what's been the big learning for you, or kind of how is how have you seen Pioneer, you know, potentially differently, you know, through this environment and situation? Again, from the from the outside in, you know, I I see I I see an interesting kind of dynamic, right? Which is, you know, on, on one hand, the focus is obviously 10xing the world's. Uh, you know, world's talent, right? And I, I think in many ways, Pioneer becomes, you know, Pioneer is literally engineered for this type of moment, right? Which is you you have a significant amount of people focusing on, you know, hard problems or, or meaningful things. And in some sense, it seems, again, from the outside, like a, a very valuable systematic design to surface the very best projects in the world, right? And of course, that can be tailored or focused on any given topic. How, how has COVID changed, um, you know, the way you think about Pioneer, if it has, and, it, and if it hasn't changed the thinking, you know, how has it kind of accelerated or slowed down kind of different aspects of operating it? I think there's a related question that, I, that I've been thinking a lot about, which isn't even Pioneer specific, which is, like, how should any person who runs anything or is yes. working on anything be thinking about COVID? Is it a blip in time or is it permanent? And of course, the more nuanced variant of it is um, what is the blip in time and what is permanent? So we can segment out two different issues. One is how long does the current state of reality last? And two is when we advance to the next chapter in the book, assuming, assuming 
The next chapter is one that will endure for quite some time. Um, what elements of you know our current day-to-day life stick and, and what doesn't? Um, so, so to answer the first question, I do think the current kind of halted economy, you know, um, everything was strictly on Zoom, stay at home. I think that doesn't last for very long, even though it probably should. You know, I'd imagine, you know, by the fall, um, you know, things will open up. That being said, I do think it'll be quite some time before we have a vaccine more than people are willing to realize, you know, maybe even two years or so. Let's not forget, coronaviruses are notoriously tricky to vaccinate. You know, this isn't polio. Um, so... Uh, you know, one, what, I think the interesting question is if you assume things open up, but there are multiple waves and all that kind of stuff, what aspects of this lifestyle remain? What are kind of the handshakes uh, and what are the restaurants? Handshakes being the thing that may be going away for quite some time, restaurants being the thing that will in some form come back. And I think that, that, that should inform one about how to think about their business. Um, you know, uh, I, I think, I think certain things will take a permanent hit where people have gotten used to slightly, you know, either they've gotten used to the way of working this way and kind of realized some of the benefits of it. Um, uh, you know, for example, I think um, company events, especially where the event is a cost center, not a profit center, um, I think will be permanently scarred because people have kind of realized they can do it over Zoom and yeah, it's not as good, but it also, they're staring at, you know, five, $10 million of OPEX in the upcoming recession and that they're probably going to strike that first. Um, I think there's a lot of products that will just die in atrophy because people realize they don't really need them. Um, uh, and so I think, you know, we're seeing uh, a lot of a mismatch in terms of advertiser spend and consumer demand uh, that I think will, will crater that market soon. Um, you know, conversely, I think uh, people will go back to offices. You know, I don't think this is going to be work from home forever. We're going to have to figure out how you go back to offices and, and maintain distancing within the office. Um, you know, and so you, you could, yeah, a great precursor here, a great way to figure out the next chapter in the book here is to just look at China where they have, you know, you know, squads of groups working together that are kind of co-quarantined. Uh, and so you at least have a sense of containment if something breaks out within an office. Um, but, but I do think people will go back to working in offices. I think travel will return though at a, at a limited level. It'll be hard to tease out exactly if that's happening because of the recession, you know, travel is often one of the first things to go or because people are a bit afraid, um, you know, but, uh, but I think that will return. And so I think like the question for every person running anything really is to just, yeah, try to figure out what aspects of reality that are happening right now are going to stick and what are going to fade immediately. Handshakes versus restaurants. That's an interesting, it's an interesting way to frame it because I think there's, um, there's a significant amount of nuance, right, to kind of all or nothing positions on digital versus physical, right? Like, I think a perfect example is there's obviously benefits to remote work. I think a lot of people are candidly being scarred on, on remote work right now because it's an, it's an unusual environment and there's a bunch of other externalities, right, that are coming into play in their remote work environment. But there's, you know, there's certainly significant benefits. And then there's significant benefits to, you know, in-person collaboration, the serendipity of hallway chats, et cetera. And so I think you're going to start to see you know, companies adopt, you know, work environments where you can take example, you know, the best of both, right? I, I do think at global scale, we'll certainly be forced to rethink, you know, many of our assumptions. And I think one catalyst, you know, from my perspective that I think actually will be accelerated, um, you know, given the constraints and the challenges on the ground in, in this geo, and, and you've had this idea for quite a bit of time, um, you know, potentially it's accelerated because of this or, or not, is the idea of, you know, the next great company or the next sets, you know, of great companies being built outside Silicon Valley. 
So you, you've thought that for a while. Talk a little bit more about that. And then, you know, has your thinking kind of changed or, or been accelerated potentially because of COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, I, you know, I, I kind of wonder, why is it? Why is it that to date all the great companies have been built in Silicon Valley? What's going on there? Like, I don't think it's access to capital. I think access to capital is quite global. Um, and yet all great companies um, end up in Silicon Valley. And it's not, that the, it's not that Silicon Valley is birthing these companies. They're almost always entirely immigrants from other parts of the United States or the world, but they all end up there. And I think what many people have, much smarter than me, have thought of this. And, you know, the, the answers are, are always some type of, there's something going on in the Petri dish there. I think it's the density of other people that you interact with, really. And it's the fact that all the talent goes there in the first place to get this network effect where um, everyone, everyone you talk to is, you know, interesting and impressive and kind of the, your, in, in their own way and causes you to punch above your weight a little bit. And there's also a lot of in-house institutional knowledge, like, for example, how to do growth hacking at scale or how to run large engineering teams at scale, you know, that that isn't very porous. This is not because this is not taught in schools. Uh, it is locked within Silicon Valley. And so, you know, those are two of many reasons, institutional knowledge um, and kind of um, inspiring uh, kind of culture and people that create this network effect um, that, that, uh, that San Francisco and, and the broader Bay Area have. I think it's very interesting to think about how you'd scale that to the rest of the world. I mean, certainly the educational parts feels like you could fix, you know, so, you know, one common pet peeve of someone trying to grow a medium to large company in say Europe is it's just hard to get great product talent there because we don't teach that at school. The only way to learn that is at companies that are in Silicon Valley and so the people are in Silicon Valley. Well, certainly you could teach that at school. Um, and so that could be one interesting thing. And then the thing Pioneer really tries to do to address this is the second half is is how, how, how can we, using software and, you know, Zoom and chat, um, mimic some of the effects of a great city on the Internet? Um, you know, this idea that you're going to bump into someone who's working on something. You started roughly around the same time you did, and is, is you know, you're sending out 1,000 emails a week, and he's sending out 10,000 emails a week. And so you think to yourself, gosh, I could send out 10,000 emails a week, and then you start doing it. I mean, that is, you know, in a, in a microcosm what Silicon Valley is. Um, and, and I think it's quite possible to upload you know, that, that aspect of a city to an internet. Uh, and, you know, indeed through COVID, we're kind of seeing that happen forcefully. It's as if nature has demanded that we do it. Um, uh, but, but it requires, it requires a lot of subtlety. And, you know, these are still things we're working through. You know, for example, one question we're, we're always stuck on is if we get a bunch of pioneers together and we have them all meet over Zoom, it is certainly better than a phone call and it's certainly better than chat. Not as good as meeting in the real world. Why that is, I think it's a very subtle, unclear problem. I don't think it's the bit rate. I don't think it's the resolution. Like you can watch a lot of TV and fall in love with a lot of people on TV. And yet uh, there's much less of a chemical reaction over Zoom. Um, uh, and, and I think the more inspiring question to ask is, you know, with the right combination of technology, could you make meeting in the virtual world even more exciting than the real world? Maybe. Um, uh, you know, there's no reason we should, you know, self-driving cars uh, aren't just as safe as humans. They are safer than humans in some cases. So, uh, you know, that's kind of our goal and aspiration and the thing we spend a lot of time building. Yeah, I think it becomes, it becomes really interesting, right? Because I think fundamentally, fundamentally at its core, I think the, the question or the impetus is what is that cross of the bridge? Right, that enables you know more of that kind of digital first environment to take over. It's interesting. I've had a you know, number of founders on on the podcast. Um, 
you know, many of, of you know, very large upscale companies talking about how technology has made a fundamental shift, you know, in their market and their model, you know, which has enabled them to take off, right? Whether it's, you know, at Lambda School in Education, right? Or Open Door in Housing or, or you name it, right? I think there is something to, you know, I, I think the event space or events business, it sort of does fundamentally shift. I think work from office fundamentally shifts after COVID. Um, if, if anything, because a lot more people have just awareness of what a digital first environment looks like. But I do think there's that, you know, there is something that's, that's missing there, exactly the way you articulated it. It's unclear, you know, how to even really define that problem domain. Um, but it's, it's the, you know, what is that bridge or what is that crossover to, to in-person? And, and I'm curious as to, you know, how, how the world reacts and, you know, kind of how, how folks react in terms of company building. Because I think there are a lot of aspects or a lot of elements, you know, that make significant sense on remote first. I, I think there's also a lot of aspects or, you know, elements that can be empowered by the internet in terms of community building, right? I've made a significant number of relationships, you know, via tech Twitter, right, versus being in person necessarily. And, and they've certainly augmented you know, and, and accelerated many conversations. But I, I do, I do often, you know, wonder similarly, you know, what is that, what is that missing piece? You know, Daniel, as we, as we round out the conversation, I, I wanted to end on a more, you know, kind of personal or academic topic. You know, you've said um, something I've, I've always found, you know, quite interesting, which is the most important skill, you know, one should develop is curiosity about oneself. And I'm curious what your message, you know, to founders, entrepreneurs, et cetera, is, you know, right now, as it pertains to curiosity and leadership in this environment. And we can probably, you know, generalize it or broaden it a bit to be, you know, the, the thought process behind, you know, curiosity and leadership in, you know, any moment of crisis or any moment of, you know, trying time or abnormality. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, we're all these just uh, biological uh, bags of atoms uh, reacting to whatever stimulus is in front of us, be it a cup of coffee, a certain light, uh, you know, hitting the phobia in our eyes um, uh, or, you know, certain sounds hitting our inner ear. And um, I think it's, it's quite crucial. And, and I think one does this kind of automatically as they age to figure out um, why you end up doing certain things. And, you know, as, uh, you know, I, 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 I think the, the right strategy is, occasion, is, is occasionally, um, well, uh, almost surprised uh, at the way you do certain things. I actually think people are far less um, aware of, you know, th- the way they make large life decisions than, um, than, uh, than, than they think of, uh, you know, and, and people will often rationalize things to you and you kind of realize when you're talking to them and they're rationalizing, say, why they picked one company over the other, that they're figuring it out live as they talk to you. You know, they don't even have that answer in their head. Um, and I think if you, if you figure this out and you can kind of reverse engineer your own uh, psyche, so to speak, I think it becomes quite helpful when trying to understand other people. And you kind of realize that none of us really understand what we're doing and we're constantly improvising. We're constantly improvising, um, figuring out what's next, just, you know, the, the seat of our pants, really. And um, I, that helps you quite a bit, I think, in moments of uncertainty, obviously, but also, you know, when selling candidates or, or kind of working with other people, um, you kind of realize how chaotic the process is. And again, you realize that the uh, stated reason is never often the, 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 the real reason. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think that the good news is everyone can, um, can train, so to speak, can do some reps on themselves uh, before going out into the real world. And so I think, you know, the more you understand yourself at a deeper level, probably the more 
you can empathize and understand others. Well, Daniel, I, I really appreciate the time. You know, this is certainly an interesting conversation and excited to, you know, watch watch Pioneer from afar as you, you know, continue to scale. And, you know, certainly as as we look, you know, all of us as, you know, business owners, leaders, et cetera, look, you know, to get through, uh, you know, this trying time. So thanks again, you know, really appreciate the time and, and having you on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit.